We're normally very positive here on This Alabama Life, but today we're going to talk about something that is unimaginably bad. Something uh, I'm afraid a lot of people don't really realize is going on out there. And if we do realize it, we think, well, it's not happening here in Alabama, not around the Birmingham area at, at all. And if we do know what's going on and we do know what's happening here, we think, well, maybe the government or somebody should be doing something about it. Well, today we're going to meet somebody who's doing something about something unimaginably evil on This Alabama Life. Welcome to This Alabama Life. My name is Don Keith, and I'm the guy that's designated as host. And the lady who's designated as co-host is Andrea Tice. Good to see you, Don. Great to see you. This is going to be an interesting program today. Yes. Uh, we typically try to talk about positive things, and in the long run, this is a positive thing we're going to talk about today because we have somebody who's doing something about something that uh, a lot of us don't know about, but we need to. We need to learn more about, and we need to learn how we can help the people who are doing something about this. This Alabama Life is a podcast where we talk about people who are doing positive uplifting, um, earth-changing things sometimes, and, and that's certainly the case this week. Welcome, Alexa James. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me today. And Alexa, CEO of an, an outfit called Blanket Fort Hope. And I admit, I had no idea that you folks existed, but I'm anxious to learn about what you do. Well, I'm anxious to share about what we do, um, and I'm excited that the word is getting out enough that, you know, your group thought to call us so we could share more about who we are. Uh, Blanket Fort Hope has been around for seven years, um, and I'd like to give a little background on Blanket Fort Hope so people can remember that name. Well, like, let's do that, but first let's find out what your connection is to Alabama. Oh, I, well, I, I was born and raised in Alabama. I love Alabama. I'm a, a Birmingham uh, girl and was born and raised and went to school here and college here and uh, work, have worked here all of my life. So you could, we could safely say you really do have your ear to the ground when it comes to what is happening in Birmingham. Yes, you can. Yeah, and you yeah. even mentioned when we were uh, coming in to the interview that your father was running businesses in Birmingham mm -hmm. in the streets, really, uh, with a hot dogs or... Yeah, well, he had a hot dog stand, yes. Yes, yes yeah, he did. Um, Alex is hot dog king, if I may say. Uh, they're not around any longer. My dad passed away when I was 15. Uh, so we grew up around that and around Pete's famous hot dog stand and... Uh, I had an uncle that worked at a large bank in Birmingham, downtown Birmingham. And I can remember, remember as a little girl, uh, my mom actually took the bus downtown and we would go to places like Pazitz and Loveman's and places that don't exist anymore, except yes. in our history and our minds, just like those Greek hot dog stands, oh, still a couple of them around, but no, oh, yeah. how many different ways can you do a hot dog? But they were all fantastic. It has to do with the sauce. I told you. Yes, sauce. It's all about, <laughs> it's well, all about the sauce. We've got to change creative. the subject very quickly, please, <laughs> because it's lunchtime and I haven't had lunch yet. So. Hey, I, right. I can throw you on some hot dogs somewhere. I okay. <laughs> Well, tell us about um, just your experiences in Alabama, Birmingham area, uh, where your education was, things that led you down to where you are today. Yeah. So I grew up in Midfield, Alabama, and um, we went to Midfield schools for a little while. Then my parents chose to send us to a private school, and it's probably because I was a little, um, I was a little, I was a little, um, 
I'm not really sure what the word would be. The statute of limitations has run out on insurance. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> it was probably the best place for me to be. I wasn't a bad child. I was very curious. Let's say that. Okay. Um, and I had two sisters, and they just felt that was best for where where we, we landed. And from there, I went to Southeastern Bible College for a year. I met my husband, and we married. And then I continued a little bit more of my education at uh, UAB in elementary education. And then later in life, I went back to school and took some leadership and ministry classes at Highlands College. Um, but during all those times, I've, I, you know, I, I was a sales rep by nature. Um, I had worked for some really good companies. I worked for Clear Channel for a while, and I worked with FedEx, Kinko, and major account management. Um, I had my own little business for a very short time that I did sales uh, serv- service work for Home Depots across uh, Alabama. So yes, I'm very well grounded in this state. I mean, we I went to the Greek church uh, for a while, then a Methodist church, and then a Baptist church. So I've got, I have a, a well-rounded experience <laughs> in all things that I do. Um, and I mean, I love this state, and I love uh, that we're able to help children. And I think that there's a huge need across the United States of America, and I really believe that Alabama um, is pilgriming through this, and I think that it's going to make a difference across the United States, honestly. So, yeah, you you had a degree, you got a degree in elementary education. So that is my background, yes. That's your background, right. Mm -hmm. So obviously children featured in uh, early on in your life and, of course, getting married and having your own and all of that. Yeah, I have Uh, have two boys and a daughter in love. I didn't say that, and a grandson. You better mention all of them. Yeah, I did. Alex and Nicholas. Alex is my oldest. Nicholas is my youngest. My daughter-in-law is uh, in love. My daughter-in-love is Rebecca, and Michael is my the most wonderful person in the world. He's just my love. That's he's your 12. grandson. Yes, of course. And, and he's spending the night with me tonight. A matter oh, of fact. wow. So they, so both <laughs> your uh, children, adult children live in the state? They both do. My oldest uh, works for a large company here in Birmingham that uh, he does, and I'm no longer going to say this wrong, some type of computer work, some kind of fancy computer work. <laughs> and then my youngest is a math teacher at a very large high school in our state. In okay. here. Yeah. All right. So they're also, well, he, in this case, he's dealing with children, teens. Teen, yeah. Is, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And has a great love for what we're doing and, and what he's doing. And it's, um, you know, just, we see things through the schools as well. So. All right. Well, let's, let's dive a little deeper into the unsavory part of this because we're now going into what's happening to children here in this state. Tell us what made you aware of this level of abuse and um, evil, Yeah, it, for lack of a better word. Uh, so, you know, you heard a little bit about my background, what I was doing. And when I was with FedEx Kinko's, I had uh, decided to go back to college at Highlands College. And just because I wanted to, ta- mainly I wanted to take some leadership classes and I just... I was uh, diagnosed with lupus in my late 30s, and I was very, very sick with with that. And um, I had a lot of issues uh, with the inside of my body because it was systemic lupus. And I am a very vivacious, fun, and all over the place kind of girl. And this kind of landed me in a in a dark spot where I just didn't have the energy to do anything. And through that process, I I had something called Guillain-Barré, and uh, from taking a flu shot, I was in the hospital for eight weeks, and they did not think that. I may not live from it. Which I've also had, by the way. So Have I know you? what you're talking about. It's an awful thing. Yes. Oh, man. Um, and so, I mean, I, I 
I didn't know that I would even go back home and be with my kids. And that's how I began to think there's got to be more. I've got, there's something I, I need to do. There's got to be more to life than just going to work every day and taking care of just myself and my own family. Mm. And so that's kind of, the track kind of started there with me questioning. And I tell you that a, a lot of the people that we interview on this program who have gone out to help others had exactly that sort of revelation. You know, there's got to be some reason I'm here, some yes. reason I, beyond myself that I can do something for other people. Yes. And I, I admire those who have done that. Just, just like I admire you, obviously. Oh, thank you. It is uh, it is amazing when you get in that position, when you really think that you may not have a long life and you realize that things that you're doing, they're just not that important, like just working every day. Of course, you need to make money, but there's just so many much more important things that we need to open our eyes to. And I just uh, felt the pull, and I didn't know what that meant. Now, I have always loved people and I have always wanted to be a helper of people. As a matter of fact, my name means helper of mankind. And I think that's exciting too. Alexandria, that's what it means. Mm. Um, and so that was always kind of important to me. I mean, I always looked at that. Um, but it still took me about 10 years um, after that process of being sick. And then the Guillain-Barre actually ended up helping the lupus. Um, and when I realized that I, I did have a life, I still decided that there was something that needed to be done. And so that was kind of through that process um, and that 10 years of going back and forth and, and meeting new challenges and, and doing things outside of the box that I normally would do. I was some life experiences, not always good, but just things I started doing. And I decided then to go back to Highlands College like we talked about. And I didn't even really know. It really was more for I wanted to learn more about leadership and I wanted to learn uh, more about ministry and what that could look like. And I did not know what path it was going to lead, lead, lead me down. I actually was a little bit nervous about it. I'm like, you're taking two years of your life in your late 40s, and you're, make, you know, you're starting all over again. And for those who don't know, our Highlands College is affiliated with the Church of the Highlands, which yes. there's one of those on every corner now, right? I think there Pretty is, much, yes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The, it was a good place for me to be at the time. It was a really good place because I was searching uh, for my next steps. And I, like I said, I didn't know where that would lead. And through that process, one of the things we have to do is um, a, a mission trip, but then we also had to do outreach at their Dream Center. And one of my mission trips was at Los Angeles to their uh, Dream Center, which was life-changing uh, with the things that I saw. You can only imagine there was actually a place called Skid Row where people <clears throat> would go to take their last hit of drugs and die. Mm. And there were it was just box city for three blocks. It it really existed. You know, we hear that, but we may not believe it unless we see it. Mm. And it broke my heart. It and my, it just seemed so big that there was, you know, what can we do? And when I came back to Birmingham and I did this outreach through the Birmingham Dream Center, I think it was for six months that I did it. And one of the programs I did was through the um, Woodlong Elementary School. And it was the reading program. I was so excited and thought it was going to be so great. And I was going to help little children read. And it was going to be so sweet. And I had my cute little outfit, my perfume on. And I walked in the door and I'm like, oh, man, this is like a war zone. <laughs> I mean, I was, even after going to the L.A. Dream Center, I'm still like, whoa. And it's true. It's true what you hear. Um, you walk into a school where if a teacher is sick, there's no sub. You walk into a school that's there's not a lot availability of any resources. 
you walk into a school where literally on the street corner, there is a drug dealer that is recruiting first through sixth graders. Then when you sit with a second grader who can barely read the words and or for, but that because they're not at school a lot and they don't smell good Mm. and they sit in your lap and they look at you and they smell you in your neck and lay their head in your little neck and they say, I want to go home with you. Mm. You don't walk away from that unscathed. You just don't. And if you do, you need to have a talk with me. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, through the process of learning, I was like, why? So I started asking questions. Many of them did not have fathers or mothers, maybe. Their mothers were out being prostituted to pay the bills. And this child was at very high risk and probably had already been being sold to buy drugs and food. And that was just a little bitty girl. And when I started asking questions and digging deeper into that, I met a young lady and helped her start uh, um, another nonprofit that helped adults in trafficking because she had been trafficked. And so we we worked uh, really closely together for, for four years, and this was just with adults, but I still knew I needed to get back to the kids, but I knew I needed to learn. And, you know, y'all, I used to, I used to be that person, and, and I tell you this, I used to be ashamed to share this, but I want to tell people this because I want them to know that it's not the truth, that you cannot pick up your yourself by your bootstraps if you do not know that there's something else out in that world. If you live in this community where you've never seen anything any different, you've never been shown love, you've never been seen, you've never seen success, you don't even have clean clothes, you don't have food for lunch, you go to a school where there's somebody recruiting you as soon as you walk out the door or they will kill you, and that is the truth. I saw it with my own eyes. It's undeniably the truth. And when you talk to a police department and they're doing everything that they can and they're getting these guys and then they're back out on the streets in 24 hours because they have they hold just enough not to go to federal prison. And so um, I started having nightmares at night. I read a book called Passport Through Darkness, which was another agency in Defar that was working with children where they were being sold and babies as young as six months. Can I... I this is going to be kind of harsh. Is that okay? Sure. Uh, babies as young as six months were being raped with sticks. And that began this journey of Blanket Fort Hope um, into early 2015. I just, I knew I needed to do something different. And after interviewing these women for so many years and recognizing that they had problems as children, whether it was sex abuse or child abuse or being sold or mental health, um, there was some issue, there was some reason that brought them to that, and there was nowhere for them to go during those early years. And so Blanket Fort Hope was birthed out of that, scared to death. And I, was, I did, I was like, God, I do not want to start over. I am 50 years old. I do not. <laughs> but something tells me you couldn't resist. I couldn't resist. You know, it, it strikes me that there's ignorance here, ignorance from us who we don't know this that sort of thing goes on. We may see a documentary sometime about this happening in Bombay or yeah. wherever, Chad or some of those sorts of places. We don't think about it happening in Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. And there's ignorance on the other side where they don't know of any other life. That's They're born into it. They have no choice. That's right. They think they have no choice. They do. They think they have no choice. And honestly, there's not a lot of options for them. There's just, you know, we have... We do have a, a, a group homes that try their best. There's not enough people that want to help. There's not enough people with services. 
And these children children need very specific trauma informed services. Uh, they can't you can't just put them in a group home and give them food and clothing, which is wonderful, uh, but it's not enough. And so they're back out on the street, according to some of our police departments, within twenty four to forty eight hours by eighty seven percent. And so. As I'm learning all these things, I'm recognizing more and more that what kind of home do we need? And we have been very fortunate and blessed that that DHR has really helped us and and sat down with us and said, "This is a problem. This is what we need." Um, and I so so Alexa, just so our audience is clear, a blanket Fort Hope is is a home created for children who are have been subjected to sex trafficking yes. so that they can be informed not just the physical needs of of immediate safety and and care but you know future um therapy <clears throat> yes. would you say absolutely that? yeah so it's a big old mission and vision okay some people call me a dreamer and I say I'm a visionary. Back off. <laughs> Good for you. You, you, you gotta, get to pick your own label, okay? Yeah, yeah that's right. I do. Or crazy. <laughs> we can we can pick, choose that one too. Um, and it is it. You know, it's, it does start with a dream. You have to start somewhere. And so Blanket Fort, I don't know if y'all remember building Blanket Forts when yep. you're little, okay? Now it makes sense. Yes. That was my next question. Where did this name come from? So Blanket, my boys love them. I had my oldest one love them very much and would build them all over the house. And um, sometimes we had to have code words to go through them. And most of the time the word food would work. Uh, <laughs> both of my boys are very tall, like six three and six four. I think they got their height from me. I'm sitting down. Y'all don't know. That. <laughs> um, but so Blanket Fort is a place of safety. You mm-hmm. know, I can remember talking to different people and even them. There was a place where they felt safe, a place where nobody could enter. And that's significant of a fort, a mm-hmm. fort where we've planted our flag and it's being guarded by an army. So we're automatically a fort. And our blanket fort has a name and it's Hope. So we don't want people to leave um, this podcast or anywhere that I speak feeling like there's no hope because y'all there is. That's why we're here. We can pretend that it doesn't exist and it is, then it's sad, but it does exist. And so we're going to do something about it. So we're offering hope and you want to be a part of that. You know, we all have a chance to be a part of changing a a child's life and giving them hope. Um, And I've seen it. I've seen it happen and it can happen. And so that's what we're doing. Um, we exist to help survivors of minor trafficking, of human trafficking. But until we were able to get land, and we'll move into that in a second, we also are advocates and trainers. And that has been very important to us, advocates on the state level, but also uh, professional training and foster care. We have a foster care initiative where we train foster families. So it's about a four-hour training. So if they get a child that's been trafficked, then they will have some sort of um, direction on what that looks like. And then we can come in and help in other ways if we can, but it's not enough. But, you know, you don't just go in and build a children's home on a whim. It's taken seven years of planning because we want to build, be built on a firm foundation. We don't want to be somebody that's just a passerby or um, virtually hard to meet the challenges of DHR and our state, um, even our local homeland and, and, and FBI and our police departments and all of our wonderful partners like Safe House and Owens House and our forensic interviewers. It's, it's just been a process of what are we doing? How do we do it together? And so we now, we purchased land, 73 beautiful acres in um, South uh, uh, South Shelby County, and we bought it and paid for it two weeks later. Wow. 
Yes. Well, we I, we had we had already raised one forty five, but I don't like owing money to anybody, so I was determined that we would get that paid off. And we just we and I knew that we would. I just knew that I knew that I knew. And somebody came up two weeks later and wrote us a two hundred thousand dollar check to pay it off. Well, that's amazing. Just getting the awareness out is the first step, right? Getting people yes. aware that this yeah. is a problem. It's right on our doorstep. Yes, it is. And um, it, if we continue to turn a blind eye, it'll only get bigger and, and worse. And, and and at some point, we have to turn around and face the giant right. that's coming for us. Yeah. Um, and so in doing that, you've, you've now had property paid off, and now yes. you're building a facility. How we many are. kids so will this affect? Back to the dream. Okay. <laughs> That turned into a vision. Um, so this 73 acres is going to house a restoration home, which is going to house nine children. And it also has the ability to have a disability. We also will have a set of house parents that live in that house. That process, and we learned this process through DHR and other agencies that we're seeing failure, that they're just throwing these kids in a house and they're not getting what they need or they can't hear you because they're so sick. Mm. So this Restoration Center, what it will address will be um, any any uh, STDs, HIV problems, sexual, you know, d uh, STDs or STIs, and get their little bodies well, like physically. And then we'll start addressing their psychological and their mental needs, their mental health. Um, then we'll start addressing their trauma during this process. And just to be clear, what age are we talking we will be able to house 12 to 18. We can take younger. Uh, we'll have to have staff that's full-time, 24 hours just with that child, and we will absolutely do that if we get the child. So we already have. We already need to build a second house. We already need to build one that's mm. 11 and under. Uh, the youngest child I've helped assist on was four. Mm. So, And that's familiar. Mm. That's where we have a lot of familiar trafficking, which is family trafficking in our state. Uh, so with that, but this restoration center, what's so beautiful about it is there's no expectation from the child. They just come in, they get to be fed, they get to get new clothes, they get to have little forks at the end of their bed so they can lay in and play in and read. There's going to be swings all over the property. There's going to be horses. There's going to be a garden. Um, but while we're doing that and we love them so well and value them, now again, I know people are like, yeah, right. Uh, you're painting that that naive picture. Well, no, I'm not. I've I've studied and I've talked to a lot of people, and this is what needs to happen. And we'll be doing these services just to get them to a point where I can move, then move them to the back of the property where we hope to have more homes that can be they can be placed in to those homes that will be led by foster families, but they're on our property, so they'll still use our services, and that's where they will live. And so that's where they'll continue their services, their schooling, um, their equine therapy. You know, we'll have the specialized dogs that are that can help them as mm -hmm. well. Um, and then equine therapy will be off property because we we want the horses that we have to be horses that they can just feed and love, and it doesn't have any trauma associated with them. And where do you see them going once they leave your facility? School. <laughs> <laughs> college. Uh, so we also hope that uh, at some point that we can build some type of a, a transitional, like a maybe a small apartment or even, I know I probably shouldn't say this, my boy to get mad, but I love those little mini houses. The tiny homes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And yeah. that they, you know, they're, they're small, but they all have their own little space and they're right there together. And then we still have house parents that's just over those little tiny homes. I think that would be kind of cool. And, you know, as long as these kids are under... 
uh, in a foster family uh, up until I think it's either 21 or 24. I'm so sorry. I should know this. Um, the state will pay for them to go to school. And so I want to offer them a full college degree and I want to offer them even vocational school. I want them to have the same opportunity that my kids had. Why wouldn't we? Why would my kids are successful because they had a family that loved them um, and that, you know, we weren't perfect. We failed in so many ways, but they had a space they knew they could be, you know, and they, they had the opportunity to go to college um, or, or filled their dreams. And that's what I want for these kids. And they may not all go to college. They probably won't. But if we can give them a vocational. At least see there's another life out there beside the one yes. they came from. Yes. And I think that it is going to be a process. It's going to be a lot of sadness, I think. I think there's going to be a lot of hope involved in it. And I keep having questions that come to mind here. Ask Backing up to the very beginning, how do you get the kids out of the environment they're in and into this wonderful new environment where yes. they can learn there's a different life out there? Yeah. So the good news is, Blanket Fort Hope will never do rescue because they're children. And I think it could actually be considered, you know, possibly kidnapping if we just went and got a kid. Mm -hmm. And so we depend very heavily on our fabulous police resources, our sheriffs, our homeland. Um, wonderful, wonderful guy, um, Doug Gilmer, that is a special agent in charge of, uh, of human trafficking. And then we have some FBI relationships that are wonderful, and we will depend on those. And when they, they do this... Um, they will they will send them to our home and then we'll we'll call DHR immediately or they may go through DHR and then straight to us. It can be either way. Yeah, cause um, I can see somebody that says, "Wait a minute, I depend on this kid to make money for my uh, crystal meth habit." Right. So I'm not letting you have this kid. Mm -hmm. It's mine. Well, they can't do that if we have the police department involved in DHR. They can come take them away. So mm -hmm. yay, <laughs> win for us. Uh, so we you know we'll work. You know we hear stuff because of who we are. So we can. You know, DHR can go do health checks. The police department can do that. And there's a lot of ways for them to get in those doors. They, those guys are smart. They're a lot smarter than me. They know how to get in those doors. That's why they do what they do, and I do what I do. Um, I'm just I'm just a little girl that's here to help. I'm not anything special. I have a question, and it's, it's kind of step out uh, away from all of this, the details of your dream, although I think it's wonderful um, what – what you're doing in trying to address the immediate problems yeah. in all of that you're dealing with, with families and children and, you know, the kids that you encountered at, the, at the, uh, where was that school? Uh, and Woodlong Valley yes. School. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So over time, what are you evaluating? What are you seeing as the impetus for why we have devolved down to this level in society? Yeah. And I don't think we have. I think it's always been there. I just think that we are just aware of it now because there's so much more social media. There's so much more presence in uh, everything we do via the internet. And I, so I just think we're being able to see more of it because individuals are able to talk more. Our news stations and that, that people don't want to talk about it on a bigger platform. It's too scary you know, if you say it, it's exactly. If you don't say it, it's not going to happen. But I and I always forget who who said this. Um, but it, it it goes back to if you know something and you don't do anything about it, you're doing the same evil as the person who's committing the crime. So we all have. It is our job to take care of children. It that's just it. And I am a I am a believer. And in Matthew, it says that you might as well tie a millstone around your neck and jump in the deepest part of the ocean if you hurt one of my children. 
And so I believe that. And I think that we all have a responsibility. They, they can't take care of themselves. And it's a beautiful thing. You know, it's almost, this occurs to me that the reason a lot of people don't know about this, or if they do hear about it, they dismiss it because you got to be exaggerating. This couldn't be that kind right. of a problem, right? Right. Not in Birmingham, Alabama. Right. And, you know, I think uh, it's hard for us to give. Uh, matter of fact, I just had some conversations with some of the ho- our homeland connection, and he's he's he said, please don't share numbers because we really don't know, and they change often. <clears throat> he says what we do know is that we have an underreported problem, a big time underreported problem, because children do not self-identify as being trafficked. And what family is going to call you and tell you they're abusing their child, or what child is going to call you and tell you that they're being sold for sex mm-hmm. because they don't recognize it's trafficking? They think that they are taking care of themselves even at 12 and 13 years old. And so we do uh, understand through some different studies, and they're older studies, and so these aren't perfect, but we do believe that up to 57% of all survivors or victims are are minors uh, in in our state. Um, Just from what we're seeing and what we're hearing, and it's so hard to prosecute these cases because it's hearsay until you have the evidence. And children do not want to testify. So we're trying to get better at that process and what that needs to look like. And I think our attorney general's office is trying to do a great job in helping us advocate and get better laws and how they address uh, these things in court. Um, and, you know, we don't we don't have a great data system here in our state, and, and really nobody does. And so our attorney general has an alliance, and they're actually working toward that. And I think that's going to be wonderful. And they have a lot of different agencies that are speaking into that. And one of the things that Blanket Fort Hope is doing as well is we're looking for a really great system. We're working with several different partners because we believe, unfortunately, and this sounds so cold, but it's so important that we have really good data so that that can actually real data, not pretend, not I want to get out there and scream numbers, but real data about what we're seeing. And I believe that people are probably going to be surprised and mortified. Be shocked. Shocked is the best word, yeah. Something else comes to mind, and this may not be something that you deal with necessarily, is if people are buying children for sex, that means there's a market out there for it. That's right. There are customers. A lot of customers, yes. And what do we do from that side? So there's been so many talks about that side. You know, um, there was a, a talk about a John school where these guys would get their pictures taken and they would have to, you know, they'd go into the newspaper. First offense, it wouldn't. Second offense, that it would. And that kind of fizzled out. And then there's the, one of the laws that we were advocating for was that the girls would quit getting their pictures taken in the newspaper as they're being in prison, which they should not be. And we've done a great job in making sure that they are not going to prison, these children or minors to juvenile. Um, but most of the time, uh, the John is nowhere to be found. And so these kids don't want to testify against their pimp because, and I've I was part of a street outreach team one time, and I've never done street outreach again. Children with a pimp. I just heard what you said. Yeah, children hmm. with the pimp. And a lot of it could be runaways, um, and they need to survive. They're on the street 24 hours. They need food. They need shelter. And there's somebody out there. They have a job like you do and like you do and like I do. And so the, this person's job is to search for that kid that he could well, you know, the saying goes that uh, with drugs, you can sell it how many times? If I have a drug that I sell you, how many times can I sell that same drug to you? One time. I can sell a child to you over and over and over again. So why would I continue to do the drug sales when I can have five or six children and make millions over a course of, 
you know, years. Millions. Mm-hmm. Millions. And you used a term that sort of shocked me too, familial trafficking. Yes. Yes, that's fa- it's family trafficking. And that is where we have, we believe there's a very big problem in our state with familial trafficking, um, with people that are paying their rent, buying drugs, trying to make extra money. Uh, there's been case, there's been several cases that I've been privileged to um, that absolutely were just heartbreaking and sad where the, the mother actually took the child in to the place that she was selling herself and then would sell that child as well. Um, this is a, especially insidious to me because uh, already you've got the problem with the pimp and, and they use um, coercion as well as intimidation and threats right. and including, you know, threats to their lives. Yeah. So that, that, um, silences the child before anything can be even exposed. Yes. And then on top of that, you add this family element where you, you your, your very existence has always been within that group and you have no idea that there is any other option. That's just the way you're raised. It's That's the way right. you're raised. Mm-hmm. It, it's extremely, um, well, I don't, I, I'm searching for a word for this, but it's just extremely enslaving because they just don't have even the mental capacity to think outside of that. They don't. And most of these kids, their mental capacity is way below what their age is because of the trauma. When you have that kind of oh, mental yeah. trauma, your yeah. brain just quits growing. There's th- that's, that's, um, that's an actually that's an scientific, actual, scientific fact. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> and so, and plus these kids live in fear too. We, they're, um, I can tell you a really quick short story when there, the, the national uh, CAC does does a huge training in Huntsville every year, and they bring in people from all over the, the world in the United States. And I was able to go a couple of years ago, and they had a, a judge from Colorado there. And he was, his job was to teach us how to de-escalate things and how to even de-escalate yourself when you're in that situation. And he's telling us all these stories. He's telling us a story about a little boy that was being trafficked by their family from the time he was born, I think up into 12 or 13. And he said, this child, the dad was a doctor and that all of his friends were as well. And so he would, his friends would pay to come and, and, and have sex with this child. And the child quit reacting, so they started burning him so that they would get some kind of reaction out of him. Um but because there was one person that was willing to help this child and get him what he needed, and that person, the person who was doing this, the family, they, they were prosecuted. It's an unusual case. And he said, so I want y'all to know, you agencies out there working to open an agency, even if it's one child, the difference. And he, he looked at us and he said, that child was me. Oh, my goodness. And that's what we all did. Oh. And that's what he wanted because then one of the things he was teaching us how to escalate. So he said, now what are you going to do? So we all had to stand up and do our thing that was that we were doing that we de-escalated. But I have tears just rolling down my face. It's one of the hardest stories I had heard to that oh, date. Wow. And he said, so don't ever underestimate what you can do for a child. He said even in his judgeship that he works with children and, and he's out of the box. He said, I'm waiting to get fired any day. I hadn't yet because we're making a difference. He said, I, I have a contract with kids that come to my court, and they have the ability to tell me one thing that I have to say in court, whether every other word is dog or whether every <laughs> other word is clown. And he said, and I do that. And he said, we play football back and forth. We do different things. And he said, children are changing because I've given them, and that's what we're seeing too, we have to let them be responsible for things. We can't take everything away from them because that's what's happened. And he also said that he had one particular child among many, many 
that he would get her, he'd place her, she'd run away. So he finally had a contract with her. He said, you go ahead, you run away. He said, but I want you to call us as soon as you want to come back, whether it's 24 hours or three or four days or whatever it is. He said, I'll come get you. She goes, no, you won't. Nobody lets you come back. He said, yes, yes, I will. He did that for five years. Mm. During the time that we were at this event, which was, I think, three years ago, um, she was about to graduate college. Wow. So don't tell me there's not hope. And yes, these kids are upside down. And yes, trauma can be reversed uh, because we can give that brain better things to think about through this trauma therapy that, you know, trauma-focused therapy that we're going to be doing and through the different exercises. Well, you alluded to the fact that it's very difficult to prosecute the uh, pimps, Mm -hmm. the uh, guardians, the parents who are doing this because nobody will testify. Right. So. Is it your opinion that the best thing to do is get the kids out of this mess and show them the right way? Um, and, of course, go after the ones you can who are doing this. Yeah, and I think that we still have, that still has to be a priority because if we don't get them off the street, they're just going to go get another child. Mm-hmm. That's the problem is even like I was saying with the runaways, they will find a way. There are always children to, to find. It's just the, like the LBGT community. Those kids are, are because of Social media, whatever it is, the pressure, they're coming out younger and younger. They're being bullied. They're out on the street, either because the families kicked them out or they feel hopeless, whatever it is. And so those kids are being trafficked as well. And so if we can't get these people prosecuted, then they're going to continue to find children. And so it's just going to be this vicious cycle. So I believe that um, both of those things need to happen. And we've got to figure out a way for that to happen. But right now, I have to get those kids off the st- street. And I have to, st- I still work with the attorney general's office and everybody that I can or that allows me to do so. Um, and the third leg of this stool, the customers. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Oh. Mm. Something has to happen there as well. Yeah. Yes. Well, without the, you know, without the demand, we, we wouldn't have to worry about the supply. Mm. So that's right. And the, and the, another aspect, it seems to me, and that's the purpose of this whole podcast is if we raise awareness, that's the first step in someone believing the child when they, when there's an op, uh, uh, an, uh, an event or an issue mm-hmm. that brings this up. Yeah. This is almost so bad that people don't believe it. Well, they, they don't want to believe it. Yeah. It, it's like I was telling you about when I did that street outreach, we had two, uh, a young lady, 17 that I was talking to and we actually were police ran. So we weren't just. You know, I didn't really know that much about what I was doing, but I followed instructions. And she asked us to please leave that her pimp was watching her. And she said, if you didn't, she could be, I could be killed, not me, her or her friends. Or she said, I would be punished and burned. Or, you know, she said, please leave. So I did. I left. And, uh, and I don't, I will never know whether this was my fault or whether this was just a happening from something else. But her friend who was with her was found. Mm-hmm dead in a body bag two days later. And so I've never done a street outreach again. Um, I'm glad for the people that do, but I will say this from everything that we hear in every meetings that I ever go to, that sometimes street outreach can be more dangerous than it is good. Uh, I think there's, you know, you need to have a way to do it without people recognizing who you are and what you're doing, because these girls, they, they get in trouble for talking to you. They get beat, they get, their little bodies are just, I mean, these these kids have a lifespan of about seven years because of suicide and drugs and beating. I mean, if you rape a child over and over again, their little body's just not going to hold up to it. Um, and, and children's hospitals doing a great job. They see this stuff. We've got great partners with 
uh, the CHIP Center, which is the rape center in the emergency room, they see it. They know that it happens. And so they're going to be working with us on some of the specialized therapies as well. And we're very excited to have them as partners. Um, and we also have some partners with some great uh, child advocacy centers. One of them is Owen's, Owen's House, our DA in Shelby County is fabulous. You know, all these people are doing such great work. Um, and w one day we'll be able to have you some real data. I, I, it's a lot higher than anybody wants to believe. I just can't share numbers because they're not identified as numbers because we can't because the prosecution doesn't come down as a trafficking case because we can't. We can't these kids don't want to. They don't, don't want to talk about and it. I don't blame them. I mean, I wouldn't either. There's a couple, two different scenarios that you mentioned uh, just recently. You know, the, the on on the street <clears throat> person that you approached, the girl that was threatened because the pimp was in view. But then the other boy who was um, whose parents were. Or, or the dad, yeah, was a doctor. Mm -hmm. So there's, it's going underneath our nose, right in front of us. People that present a certain uh, image that is not at all what it's really happening. That's a good point. How, um, what would be some practical things that a person listening to this podcast could start trying to look for and at least have their antenna in tune towards with a child who might entrust with them a little bit of information mm -hmm. that could help in their rescue or some sort of uh, addressing of this problem? I think there are several answers to that question. I think one of it is we have got to start valuing what kids say to us, not brushing it off. Mm -hmm. I think we also need to understand that a trafficker or a sex abuse offender or whomever that person is, a pimp, they're going to go to places where children are. So they're going to be in our, our corporations. They're going to be in government. They're going to be in churches. They're going to be in schools. So you can't blame it's the church, it's the school, it's this. Those people know where to go. And so we have to start looking um, looking for things and understanding. We, ha we had a case where, I, I have to tell you this because this, I think, will be pertinent to your question, a case, um, a young lady who was a foster mom and a master social worker and her husband was a policeman slash counselor, and they fostered. And they had a child they fostered that was a bad child. Nobody wanted her STDs, pregnancies, run away, run away, ugly, talked ugly. And these guys found out because of who they were, and they listened to her that she'd been trafficked by her uncle because both of her parents were in jail for selling drugs. And... um that the the grandmother was scared of the son, and so at night this little girl said she'd wake up and there'd be men on top of her, and so nobody believed her. Nobody, everybody's the way they saw her, and I think as a society we have to wonder and start asking ourselves and the questions: What's going on with this child? What what's happening? Why is this child reacting to these things? And we need to listen. Um, but a child's not going to just go up and talk to him because the person who is doing this is an adult. They've already caused so much fear. And after off their doctor, why would anybody believe them? You know, so we have got to figure out a forum where when a child says anything that that person has to be checked. But I think as an adult, we've got to open our eyes and it doesn't matter who it is. But you see some, you know, some of the things with these kids, you can start, you know, if there's burns or cuts or tattoos or you know, they're over-sexualized. Well, that's just a bad child. Why are they over-sexualized? There's a reason for that. A child doesn't just become over-sexualized. No. No. And so, you know, you've got to spend the night, spend the night friend over and a parent sees, well, this kid's eight years old and they're overly sexualized and we need to find out why.
We need to ask some questions. And I think people are afraid to ask questions. And I think we've got to stop being afraid to ask questions. And I know that's a wide a wide picture there or a big view, overview of that. But you know, th- People are afraid they'll overreact, make a bad situation worse or whatever. Well, and I would rather you overreact and be wrong mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. not react and be right. Mm-hmm. I mean, because it, it's a child's life. You know, we're all afraid. We don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to, you know, sometimes you can, maybe you could just call DHR to go do a home check. You know, there, there's, here's what I saw. There's some major issues here and this needs to be addressed. And I would keep track of it. And I would call them as many times as I had to. I'd call, I'd ask. That's their job. Mm-hmm. And they're overwhelmed too. You know, it's that the DHR, I, when I started, you know, kind of working alongside of them, I mean, they get a bad rap. And of course there's things they need to do better. We all do, but they are so overwhelmed and have so much paperwork with everything that they do. They, they, and we're still learning. There's not even enough. Pay, there's not even enough training in within that system to understand DHR. What what's happening in sex trafficking? They know there's bad stuff, and they help these kids as best they can. But there's nowhere to put them. Mm. So there's just nowhere. This will be a very specialized place, and I think that it will be uh, a leading agency for the whole United States. I believe it with all of my heart. I think we'll have the right people on the right seat on the right bus, and I think they'll get the job done. People who really know what they're doing. You know, they're they're in social work, they're uh, counselors, and they're uh, leaders, and they've been in DHR, and they've been part of police departments and counseling and emergency rooms. I think that we can make a difference. Well, Alexa, it occurs to me that this costs money. Yes. Where does the money come from? So we do fundraisers all the time, but we just had our first annual gala last Thursday night, and it got, y'all, it got canceled. We had it on February the 18th, and there was storms. Oh, right. Oh. Yeah. We planned it for 11 months, and at 1 o'clock that afternoon, guess what? I get a call. Sorry, the venue's closing down. I'm like, no, you can't close down. So um, as devastating as that was, we we picked ourselves up, and the next morning we started looking for new venues, and I said, we're doing this. We have everything we need, and so we did it April the 7th, It just and we raised $126,000. So that, you know, it's going to cost us $1.2 million to build this home. It sounds like a whole lot. Uh, but the property's paid for, and we already have money in our our marketing. Um, I mean, our our, our our housing account. You know, that's building every day. Um, we've got people doing free services on the house, and uh, people even doing stuff on the inside of the house for free. And um, we just, you know, a monthly donor changes things. Mm. You know, it doesn't have to be a thousand dollars a month. It's going to cost us about thirty five hundred dollars a month to take care of a child. It takes about thirty five hundred dollars per room to build. You can have a small group. You can have a, a workplace that contributes that once or, you know, have a whole team of people that donate $100 a month. Um, we can't do this without people donating. And we know that it, it's going to come, and we just want people to understand that we have this grave need, and you're going to be changing lives. This is not just an agency that's looking to, hey, yay, we're doing this, and we have this great leadership, and they're getting paid this. We are feet on the ground. I don't want people to remember me. I want people to remember that children are being saved at Blanket Fort Hope. I want people to know that we believe in a Savior that knows that these that's where our real healing is going to come from. Yes. This isn't from Alexa. This isn't from our team. Don't don't remember me. Remember that you're helping kids. Let's think about that. Let's focus on the need, not the people. Let's focus on the need of what we've got to do. And together, we can change this. And even make people aware of something that's almost too horrible for them to contemplate and believe. Yeah. But prove to them, show them, and show that you can make a difference. 
Yeah. And people can every day. We've got groups from all over and and just women and churches and and people in business that it's so interesting when I start talking to these people when I go speak. There's at least one or two people out of every crowd, even crowds as small as 20 people, every single time where somebody comes up and tells me. I had an older lady from a small speaking venue who came to me and said that she was trafficked as a child. But at the time, she was probably 65 to 70 because those words weren't even. Yeah. I mean, there's people in my circle. Every, there's tons of people in my circle that you would, you would never even dreamed that that happened to. So this is also given an opportunity for those people, and we're at, we're allowing them to speak. We have a survivor that speaks for us sometimes. She spoke at our gala that was trafficked as a child. Um, by taking these moves, Alexa, by even you know creating the organization, creating a physical facility, yeah, you're saying it's real and it's serious, and we're addressing it, and that tells people who have carried a long uh, held secret. Yes. The, the, the safety to know, okay, these people will get me. They're not going to say I'm crazy. They're not going to dismiss me and, and uh, talk it down or talk me out of it. Mm-hmm. They're going to believe me because they're going to this effort right now to build this. Yeah. So- I can promise you um, when, well, when Blanket Fort Hope was started, I'm not going to tell you my age, but it's my fifties. Um, I, I went kicking and screaming. I just like, and so every once in a while I go, if I could just go to a job that was, you know, nine to five or four, whatever, and come home and not go to a baseball game or whatever. But it's, you know, that's not what, what God had for me. And I'm thrilled to be doing what I'm doing, but it is hard work. It's not something you choose. I can't imagine. You see it every day. Well, you know, fortunately, you know, we have people in place that see it more than I do. We don't have the home yet, but we we do we do but there's people that are are trained um and we also one of the things that we'll do on our property that I think people need to know is our staff that works in those homes every day and the families that work with these kids they will have counseling available to them that's mandatory once a month and probably some of the staff depending on who they are and what they're doing they may even be have a, a weekly we believe in taking care of our people as much as we do those kids because they're pouring into them, so we're going to pour into our staff. It's very important that yes. we love them like yeah. we do these kids because it is hard to hear. And I know that I'll be hearing more and more of it, but I still won't be the person that's the counselor. I'm not a counselor, and I'm not a social worker, but I'll be in those homes, and I'll hear, and I'll see. But these people are are boots on the ground. They're sitting like we are and like we are this close and talking to them every day. Um but you see, they're making a difference. You're making a difference. Yes. The people who donate and support you are making a difference, a real difference. Yeah. I mean, we. Uh, <clears throat> I got an email this morning, this foster care initiative program that we do offers CEUs. And one of the things it was hoping to do was to give DHR a place to put kids in the interim until we're built because these certain foster families had that. And now that we have the World Games coming in, oh, y'all. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had a big meeting with our uh, with different agencies in Homeland on on Monday. We're expecting five hundred thousand people, a hundred different countries, and so there's going to be all kind of specialized things happening in the background during that time. And so that's one of the things we're about to hike 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 up on is our foster training through DHR, and I, I, they we, I believe that's going to start pretty soon, so that they will have a place to put those kids in the interim because there's just not enough. Th- they're just going to group home but we've got to have a safe spot for them to go. Now, if somebody wants to find out more, one, about human trafficking, yeah, 
Secondly, about Blanket Fort Hope. Yeah. Where can they learn more? Well, you can go to blanketforthope.org, and we have um, all kinds of resources there. We also offer training. We offer professional training. We offer church training, family training, foster care training, um, you know, down to high school training, like the signs of human trafficking, and we love to go speak to people. Um, but our website is just full of resources. It's full. There's pictures of you can go to around the fort, and there's all kind of information about this new property and this home, um, how to donate, what we need, what we're seeing, what the future looks like, what it has looked like. Um, and I, it's just a great place to land. And, the, and and even from our website, there's other resources like NICMIC, the National Exploitation Center, that you can you can linked to that are they do great work nationwide and we're one of their partners we're partners with big oak ranch y'all do y'all know big oak ranch yes i'm, yes. I'm sorry i just have to give them a plug because i believe in collaboration yes i think it's very important I, I think there's enough out there for all of us and we can't do this by ourselves but they have a program called planting oaks and they have put us under their wing a couple of years ago and they've offered us hr um handbooks and, and ha their average house parent stays 12 years versus the one year across the nation. So they're going to help us with that hiring process. And we've already got things in place that we know are going to work. Like that's what I've been doing for seven years. So these, there's a lot of resources from our face, our, our, our website that you can pull from, but it's very important that you read them. You know, it's, you know, the signs, there's some um, easy stuff there to read. Our Facebook page constantly has updates on stuff we're seeing and what we're doing. It's Blanket Fort Hope as well. So is our Instagram. Um, and we would love to just come talk to you one-on-one. -on -one. I would love to share our mission and why we need you. We need people giving. And I know people get tired of that um, hearing. There's always somebody, you know, that needs money. But I believe this is one of the most important causes when you can help a child. Yeah, you know, a lot of times people are, are willing to You've heard the old adage where the missionary comes and is going to go to Africa and people are like, throw money at them because mm -hmm. we don't want to go ourselves. Right. <laughs> uh, right. You know, this is this is our uh, uh, ability, ability to uh, ease our conscience. Mm -hmm. But here with you coming to a church or an organization and presenting this, we want them to throw money at it. That's the first step in, yeah. in, in our ability to um, even start addressing this. And then hopefully as they give the money and as they become aware, at least at least by giving money, um, they're acknowledging this is real. Yeah. Because you don't put your money behind something that's no false. And so they can at least start that process of slowly <laughs> waking up to the fact that this mm -hmm. is right under our noses. And we, yeah. we got we to gotta work together to stop it. We do it. It takes a community of people. Yes. It take, you know, what you're doing today is helping. You're part of now of who we are. Because you're. it's not just the people within Blanket Fort Hope. It's the people around and, and part of Blanket Fort Hope. Every minute and every second that we have these opportunity is a possibility that a life will be changed. So you know now, both of you, that you are making a huge difference, and I can't do it without you. And so I thank both of you for the opportunity. But more and more businesses and churches are opening um, their eyes and letting us come speak, and they're starting to give. And I think with us having partnerships with the Attorney General and partnerships with uh, places like Children's Hospital and Big Oak Ranch, it, that also offers a lot of validity because we have been deeply vetted, you know, by these places. And so we're very transparent with everything we do. Well, Alex, I appreciate you coming and telling us about something we didn't want to hear about. Yeah. But there's we didn't hope. want to hear any of this stuff, okay? Yeah. <laughs> but we've got to. We've we do. got to. And yeah. that's the important thing. And we appreciate so much what you're doing and what your organization's doing. And, you know, we... 
we always talk about we're we're looking for positive stories about people who are doing things in Alabama. Yeah. And this ultimately is a positive story coming from a very negative place. It is. It's yes. the Lord's work, right? Because it you're is. dealing with the most vulnerable and the and and the most uh, easily abused as, from an authority figure. It yeah. absolutely is. And I mean, yeah. we are faith-based and we believe that is truly where their hope is going to come with because we know that's where the end is and where the hope is and where the heart can be healed. We know that. Yeah. And so that is our, you know, we, we want to show the love of Jesus first. Just we want you to see it. We're not going to press. We're going to show you. And then, you know, to have those opportunities to be a part of who he is. We know he heals. Well, I can't, but we know he can. Alexa James is CEO of Blanket Fort Hope, doing wonderful work here in the state of Alabama. This Alabama Life is a podcast about people who are doing positive, interesting, entertaining, and life-changing things. Andrea Tice, Don Keith, uh, if you know of other people who are doing this sort of thing, anybody who's doing something positive and is associated with the state of Alabama, we'd love to hear from you because we would like to have them on this podcast and introduce them to our millions and millions of people who watch us every week. Andrea, do you mind if I give you give your email address? Sure. Andrea.tice at 1819news.com or don at donkeith.com. We'd love to hear from you if you know somebody who would be a great guest for our program, just like uh, Alexa James has been today. And we hope you'll tell other people about our podcast. You can get it any place you get podcasts, but if you can't find it any place else, go to 1819news.com and click on the podcast link. That not only directs you to this one, but to some other very interesting and very informative podcasts from 1819 News. Thanks for being with us. We'll see you next time.